1: A podcast one production.
0: From the inside with Peter Ricks. This is the series that takes you on a trip of discovery into the world of the Australian music business from the 1970s to today. Music industry veteran Peter Ricks speaks to the legends of this industry, those who have thrown everything they've had into making a career and leaving their mark. These stories are filled with both their triumphs and their troubles, unvarnished and honest conversations with a bunch of unique, fascinating characters who Peter has had the privilege of growing up with. Here is Peter to introduce this episode's guest...
2: There are few long-standing members of the music industry globally who have the unique ability to hear and smell a hit record. There are, at the same time, a lot of pretenders who think they know, but not many of them can show a track record of finding those neglected, unsigned, unwanted recording artists who they can put in a studio with a song that ultimately finishes its journey at the very top of the music charts such a genius is today's special guest charles fisher is one of those quiet achievers that you'll only find if you search the credit section of your next album so from radio birdman in the 70s to savage garden and well beyond this is a serious practitioner of the art of producing and recording hit records they call him the song doctor and with good reason a warm welcome today to charles fisher g'day mate
1: g'day mate good to see you again (laughs)
2: how did it all start for you? Where, where, where did you, how did you end up on this journey that you've ended, that you, look look where you are now, my goodness.
1: Well, I I, I started very young, you know, at, at, by the time I was 16, uh, I knew what I wanted to do with my life was make records. And, you know, like uh, like most of my generation, I was totally inspired by the Beatles. I did my time in my high school bands and things like that, but Thing in, always, in Sydney, in Sydney,
2: right.
1: the thing I always wanted to do was uh, make records. That I used to listen to records, tear them apart, try and work out why they were doing what they were doing and how they were doing it. And I, uh, all my life, that's that was it for me. From probably the age of sixteen, were, that's
2: what were there heroes do. in those days for you?
1: Yeah, for me, um, for me, of course, the Beatles. They were right up there. Um, I had a couple of Australian heroes. I loved the Easy Beats. I loved uh, Billy Thorpe's early records with uh, the Aztecs, like Poison Ivy and things like that. Mm. Um, but, it, but re- record-wise, it really was the Beatles. They, they were they were my training ground. I tore those records apart. Yeah,
2: well, for a lot of us, of course, yeah. I mean unfortunately there's generations that don't even remember them arriving, Charlie, but we will move on from that small moment. <laughs> so then, so you're 16 and you, you you love it, but there had to be a point of commencement of of you actually being able to make a record.
1: Well, the, the, I, I, it was a, a strange journey when, uh, when I finished high school uh, I packed my bags, went to Europe. In Europe I came across a Hungarian jazz rock band, and I toured Europe with them doing their live sound, which was my first foray into manipulating the dials. Wow! Um, would this have been what
2: became serious?
1: This was what this was serious. This was serious, and this was, I guess, nineteen sixty nine that I first came across them. It would have been, uh, I guess, October sixty nine, November sixty nine. I remember because it was cold, mm. um, and. Uh, I, I fell in love with their music, and I started touring with them and twiddling the knobs, and um, I, even, I even recorded with them. I had this little sound-on-sound sound tape recorder that I used to to record them.
2: So we actually, earlier than I thought we would, we leaped straight into your long and fantastic re- relationship with... Uh, possibly the world's greatest bass player, in my humble opinion, in, in, a, bloke in, my... called, in a bloke called Jackie Ozarski, who, of course, was really the leader of uh, of Sirius.
1: Yeah, he, he he was an amazing bass player. He, he um, he he was even offered to there. Was, there was a band, uh, a guy by the name of Stevie Winwood, had a band called Traffic in those yeah, days. Oh yeah, just just a little, little band. Yeah, just a little band. Tra- tra- he actually asked Jackie to play bass in Traffic. And, but Jack, and
2: Jackie, being Jackie, would have said no.
1: No, he would have. He wanted to do it, but um, this is an era where we're still behind the iron curtain, yeah. and basically the government would not allow him to leave. Ah. So he had to. He had to decline the offer. Mm. But he was an amazing bass player, an amazing musician, an amazing vocalist.
2: Oh yeah, I mean James Brown
1: needed yeah. to be nervous with Jackie around. Yeah, he 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 was. Um, he was amazing.
2: So the, the the some the story the intersection with Charles and I in this story is, is that Jackie, uh, uh, eventually toured Sirius in Australia, which Correct. under your auspices really, or
1: yeah, as I, the benefactor in it all, I made I made the arrangements with the Hung. I was only I guess I was only nineteen, maybe twenty, coming into my twentieth year, and I made the arrangements with the Hungarian government. I got visas by the Australian government. I spoke to promoters in Australia and got them uh, gigs before they even arrived. Um, and I, I was both their manager, for, for a, a de facto manager, really, um, and their sound guy. And I toured right around Australia with them.
2: So Jackie eventually became, uh, in one of his many uh, appointments, was he was Marsha Hines's musical director for the best part of 12 or 13 years. Yes. And uh, possibly the finest musical human being that I ever knew, Um, and a wonderful moment when, after twelve or thirteen years of of pouring out the same songs time after time after time, he visited me in in my hotel room halfway through a ninety-five date tour. Shut the door and sat next to me with a cigarette in his hand. He said, "Peter, with a little tear in his eye, I just can't play this shit anymore." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he and, had, he
1: had, he had the same conversation with me on the telephone before he walked into your <laughs> hotel room. <laughs>
2: and i loved him even more for, t- for telling me um but he uh, for those listeners who are not very familiar at all with was asking, unfortunately he passed away he smoked more cigarettes than he should have and died died of cancer a few years ago and left a legacy that um if you had anything to do with the the, the world of jazz or freeform music you would have seen jackie as a as a hero um, we move, should move on because it gets a bit sad okay. with him. Trafalgar Studios?
1: Yeah, uh, 73. Uh, myself and a gentleman by the name of John Zalica decided that we were going to build a recording studio. So we uh, we found a building in Annandale, a run-down old uh, ex- it Mo- wasn't really, they didn't make movies there, he made commercials. So it was an old film studio. And we found that at a ridiculously low price. Um, my father, very reluctantly and very gratefully, gave me the deposit on the place. I think it cost us like $35,000 for the building, which is like ludicrous if you know Annandale in Sydney today. Yeah. And, um, We so we put down. I think we put down three and a half, four thousand dollars on the building, and started soundproofing it. Had a sixteen-track, Fostex quarter-inch tape recorder, a couple of microphones, and we started um, bringing in bands and recording them. Uh, It slowly grew. Later, we were joined by John Sayers, who was a a legendary um, engineer from the sixties. He'd done. Uh, the real thing for Russell Morris and Brian Cadd and uh, Spectrum, a lot of the Australian 60s bands, and that was followed by uh, Michael McMartin, who went on to uh, manage the Hoodoo Gurus and uh, run the uh, Music Managers Forum, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the, the, the And AWF, yeah. Um, so by by the by the mid 70s, we had a pretty thriving studio business.
2: I, I would have thought it was the centre of the music business's recording sphere in Sydney in those days. More it than it was.
1: It, it was the only uh, in, independent studio in Sydney that was focused completely on rock and roll. We did no commercials, no advertising in those days. It was purely mu- uh, band music. So were you, you were running the studio... I was running the studio. As, ...as well as producing. Well, no, I hadn't started to produce yet. Uh, my hands were full... Just uh, trying to market the studio and get work, and run the day-to-day operations. I, at that point of time, hadn't actually done anything professionally as a producer. I, I was looking, dropping in on sessions and learning all that I could. Uh, I'd finish, um, I'd finish my office work about four o'clock, and at midnight I was still in the studio observing people like John Sayers and Peter Walker and, Pe- and engineers yeah. that were working there and pretty much just observing and learning learning the ropes. And these guys were all really
2: in that... This is still the early to mid-70s?
1: Early early, early to mid-70s. And
2: they, um, they're all, and continue to be, productive legends uh, at the time. Yes,
1: especially John Sayers. He was an ama- amazing engineer with already by then a, a huge track record He'd come out of Albert's yeah. studios in Melbourne. So he was pretty much our um, draw card for bands.
2: So really at Trafalgar, I mean, you can't say you didn't cross the genres, could do you? Cause it no, was, we did everything. Yeah. So,
1: we, we did everything.
2: So tell me tell, tell me about some of these performers that you, or these performers, wrong, bad, bad word, Pete, the 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 layers of you know you got a, you had Radio Birdman in there but well that Radio was
1: Birdman annoying. was late later that was the late seventies by the time Radio, Radio Birdman came along but we had bands like the Dingoes,
2: yeah
1: um Greg Snedden band the drummer uh, he was
2: the drummer wasn't yeah.
1: he the drummer from Greg Snedden band went on to play with Colin Hay and Men at Work right and and we had uh, a, a gentleman by name Paul Brand who was a, a kind of country singer. Right. Um, it, it was a real mishmash of, of artists. Um, then around 75, 76 the whole industry started to get a little bit sophisticated and uh, the, the, the level of um,
2: You mean the record contract at that stage?
1: The record contract, yeah. The, rec- the, the industry started to get a little bit sophisticated and we started to uh, get people through that actually paid their studio bills, which was <laughs> really unusual well that wouldn't have been the musician that would have been the record company. that would have that been, been the record company well we had we had it's funny with Trafalgar and and even in a funny way reflected my own career we always attracted the outsiders we always seemed to attract the long shots yeah. and and the startups and people like that would be coming through our doors well but you were friendly
2: charlie that that's the the the, rec, the that record studio Musicians felt home that, that they were welcomed.
1: Well, we built it for musicians. You know, we we um, we we that's what it was built for. We I was uh, very concerned to have a comfortable environment and a f- very free feeling environment for them, a non intimidating one. And I think they they like that. And also, I mean, I love the music and I love musicians, so, you know, I, I was a soft touch.
2: <laughs> so when did you... Who, who was your first
1: All right, well, production job? It, it, it's, it's a funny story. Uh, Glenn A. Baker and Old 55. Right. So Glenn A. Baker came... Uh, had this idea for this 50s revival band called Old, Old 55. 55. And he couldn't give the idea away. So he decided he was going to have a go at seeing if he can get a record made. So Glenn turned up at Trafalgar and approached John Sayers and myself with an offer to, you know, he'll cut us in on the deal if we give him some free studio time and he wanted John Sayers to produce. And John Sayers looked at him and said, look, you know, the free studio time you have to talk to Charles about, but I'm not interested in producing. And Glenn said, "Well, who do you think I should get?" And John st- looked at me and looked at Glenn Baker and said, "Why don't you ask Charles to produce?" And Glenn Baker looked at me and said, "What have you produced before?" And I said, "Nothing." And he said, "Perfect. You're on." <laughs> <laughs> and that and that was my first job. And y- we your reco- your first my job first job was on the before. Prowl. On, no. My first job was Diana. We did a cover of the Paul Anker song. Right. And we finished it and took it to Michael Godinski, who just thought it was stupid, but what the hell, let's have a go.
2: Right.
1: He put it out, and we got a top 40 hit, so he put us into the studio and said, go do an album. And the album turned into Take It Greasy, and that's where On The Prowl came from. Right.
2: So... Just for those that weren't there at the time, how many how many albums did that sell in the
1: end? Uh, about 170,000. Yeah, they became a major that Australian recording I, I mean, this is 1976, and 170,000 album sales was huge. phenomenal in Australia. Huge. And, and I think we were about half a year ahead of Skyhooks with those kind of sales. And it really, um, it, it 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 was it was amazing. We did the whole album in seven days.
2: It's amazing, mind you. It's the world's turned full circle because that's probably what the time it
1: takes these days to do new uh, albums. It, it takes you about seven days to get going these days <laughs> <laughs> to get the drum sound right. Yeah, re, 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 reinstall everything on the computer. <laughs> so then
2: the adventure really starts for you, doesn't it? Because yes, all you know, fifty five commences it. But well, then,
1: well, it was really it was really strange because this was like seventy six through seventy eight. I did three uh, artists in a row. I did um, All 55, then I did Radio Birdman, and then I did Air Supply. Oh. And it was like, just looking at that resume, people would just scratch their heads. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't find three more diverse no. acts. And I did those three back-to-back.
2: Well, that was the, the, the Air Supply album, because... Uh, Graham and Russell, were really... um, Did they come to you or did did No, I was
1: was approached by a gentleman called Tony Hogarth from from Wizard Records. Right. And he, um, you know, pretty much uh, Air Supply were on their last legs. They'd done their stint with Sony and uh, they'd been dropped and this was for them a do-or-die record. Uh, Tony Hogarth thought that they needed... Something out of the box, and he looked at he looked at me having done uh old fifty five and then radio birdman and he thought that's pretty out of the box. go <laughs> and give it a try and and we went and we did um, lost in love, and that just resurrected them worldwide
2: well it turned them into a global yeah recording act. yes, and they a gentle conversation to have each other so they they Wizard Records was owned by Robbie Porter, and that album was taken to America and re-released through Arista, if I remember, through Clive. Yes. And a whole bunch of other people decided that they wanted to take credit for that record.
1: Well, it it, it, it was unfortunate. When the record was released in America, my name wasn't even on the the label. Uh, Um, Today, uh, what they did to that record today would be considered a remix. Right. So they basically... Just mixed, remixed the track that I'd recorded. Right. But they decided that they were, were the producers.
2: So we already have a, a, a theme. And bear in this
1: mind, show. Lost in Love was a country and western record when I made it. Oh, really? It was a country and western song. Right. Written by Graham. Written by Graham. Right. And we we uh, in the studio i I changed it, and I remember the band went on tour, and when they came back and I played it to them at the end of the playback graham just stood up and left the control room and i turned to russell and i said what's wrong and russell said he doesn't like it and i said what's wrong with it and russell said i don't know it sounds fantastic
2: (laughs) well composers always always composers
1: are like that i mean i i i do that to i've done that in my career to a lot of composers right offended the living daylights. offended the living daylights it's my job
2: (laughs) (laughs) a good producer um, so, back slightly one step, because, again, these these moments of where things interconnect. So, uh, Graham and Russell uh, from Air Supply were in Jesus Christ Superstar. Correct. With John English and Marsha Hines and John Paul Young and Stevie Wright, from the Easy, from formerly of the Easy Beats, and Tony Hogarth, of course, ran a record label for Robbie Porter, and uh, Robbie G, if you go back to the fifties, who um, who was living in America at the time, but but the Marsha also recorded for yes, Marsha so. also,
1: which is where I I'd made my connection because yeah. Marsha I think had done her first album yeah. at my studio by the time air supply came yeah, along correct
2: Marsha Shines, that's right so then the interconnect here still seems to me to be that the song. Is, is that, were you... Yeah, it's all that,
1: about the song for me.
2: Yeah. Is that
1: uh, how it was for you then? It was always like that for me. I, 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 I worked with some... Uh, I didn't work with... I never worked with great bands. I always worked with great songwriters. Yeah. And that's always what attracted me. I, I always felt that if I had a great song, anything else was fixable. But if I had a great band that didn't have a great song... It was pointless.
2: So, with a band like Radio Birdman, who were legendary for thrash, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, really they, they, they
1: they um they were again one of the outsiders. We they they won a battle of the bands contest for a, a rock magazine called Ram. Right, oh, yeah. Anthony O'Grady. Anthony O'Grady, and uh, the first prize was. A recording Time session. in a recording
2: studio, and bless you. There comes Uncle Charles and yeah, Trafalgar and, Studios.
1: Correct, and um, I just loved the band, and uh, and it wasn't so much even that I loved the band. I really did like their songs, mm. and they were they were very charismatic, and they were very different. And but you know they they were, I mean this is an era of hush and sherbet and mm. glam rock, and these guys are, are yeah they weren't exactly a pop group were they? No. It, it,
2: it, it, your experience in the studio again—a band like All 55, which really was um, a, a a sort of a recipe, a coming together, yes. which Glenn Baker uh, managed the process. Um, that 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 manufacturing of performers, uh, and those songs were they covers? Most of the those songs they were
1: they they started out to be completely covers. Um, but Jim Mansy from the band emerged as a fine. songwriter, he was a fine songwriter, and he ended. Up, and we ended up uh, prob- possibly doing about five or six originals in amongst all the covers. Right. So that on then, the prowl, being one yeah, of them, of course.
2: So then, the, the, when you've got a band, one, on one side you've got a band like All 55, but then you've got Radio Birdman, where the level of their creativity the level of of their output in some ways comes out of the personality of the band and often that personality includes major conflict yes is it was it your job to manage that conflict
1: yes right it was i i had to keep amongst everything else i had to keep the peace right so when when um uh it it was just something you had to do or or you wouldn't get it done
2: and and do you think that if they could have stayed together, that Birdman would have been as big uh, as
1: yes, some I, of the contemporaries that were there at the time? I, I thought. I mean, I, I I saw the impact Radio Birdman had on stage to an audience. The the charisma, yeah, uh, it was unbelievable. Even even amongst naysayers who didn't like the music, they couldn't take their eyes off the stage. I thought that they could be um, a really huge band. Uh, however, I was also had my eyes wide open. Uh, the main guy in the band, Dennis Tech, uh, never made uh, any bone about it. He was going to be a doctor.
2: Yeah, he was at St. Vincent's, wasn't he? Yeah.
1: So he was. The, uh, so for him, Radio Birdman was a, a hobby. Yeah. That I. I even when Seymour Stein from Sire Records signed them. I said, look, Seymour, you've got to understand, this is a weekend band. And Seymour said, "Ah, I'll get them to New York, because they'll they'll never be the same again. But he totally underestimated Dennis, who's a very strong personality. And he was always going to be a doctor, and he was determined that he would be both a doctor and a musician. And a guitar player. And, of course, uh, you can't can't split your commitment if you're going to be one of the greats.
2: (laughs) So then... We roll. Let's roll together through this because Trafalgar now, in in my eyes, in those days, sort of became the centre of the universe in some ways. Um, I mean, there are other recording studios of some significance around Paradise and others, but EMI. But the 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 interesting music always seemed to come out of your
1: place. It it did. We we um John Sayers left. John both John Sayers and John Zalika left us in the late seventies. They were gone by the time um, I did air supply um, they went on to other things and but uh, but the but the, uh, the outsiders didn't stop coming uh, I rem- uh, Cole chisel slept on the floor of my studio when they came from Adelaide to do demos for their to try and get a deal they they actually slept on the floor of the studio and they did their demos there which got them their Warner Brothers deal. Um, uh, Paul Kelly we gave him uh, a, r- a really ridiculous deal if he worked from midnight to dawn and he cut his gossip double album there All right. which he could not have done at normal studio rates no. I think I gave it to him for like next to nothing but he would turn up at midnight every night and work till dawn and they yeah, did gossip there yeah, there's a songwriter um, Midnight Oil did their first EP and album in my studio again um, because I gave the, their record company M7 Records, if you remember M7 I Records, uh, I gave them an incredible deal to make to make it possible. Right. So they they did their debut work at my studio. The, the, you know the out the freaks kept coming. <laughs> so are you comfortable talking about music as a commercial art form? It is a commercial art form. It, well, it doesn't have to be. Mm. But if you sign a record contract, you 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 are in essence saying, "I want to be exposed."
2: Mm. So that it, the talented people that the the people that have made these records with you, those that have gone on, have they got? Uh, is there a? Is there a? Any piece of their. Character that you think consistently is shared by all of them—is there something in 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 their makeup that that takes them past the point of the, of that first record? Oh, that yeah, ego. Really?
1: They 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 feel that what they do is very very good and better than any, what anybody else does. Yeah. If you don't have that ego, if you if you are insecure, if you second guess yourself. Right, That's not a good thing to have as a creative person.
2: Because the business will destroy you?
1: Uh, The the business world will destroy you if they take you somewhere you shouldn't go.
2: But that's about being able to say no, isn't it, as well as yes? It is.
1: It's about being able to say no. Uh, uh, Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I know of one act that I did, and I told the manager that, in my opinion, he should hide them and let the music speak for itself because... They were raw. And, you know, he couldn't take that advice. He had them jumping out of aeroplanes into shopping centres. And they had, a, they had a, at the time, they had a top 20 single. After he exposed them, everything stopped. <laughs> I've had that happen to me twice. I had another band from Western Australia. Uh, we had a top 20 single nationally. Uh, the band went on Countdown. And the next Monday, sales stopped.
2: Oh. That's unusual.
1: Well, it is. I mean, I'll tell you a funny story about Mr. John Woodruff, who's also a mutual friend of ours. When we were trying to get a cover for the first Savage Garden record, those kids also were quite young and raw and inexperienced, and John couldn't come up with a photograph that he was happy with. He said they don't they don't look the part. and. And the, record com- and the record company's going, we've got to get this record out, you know? So John put a garden gnome on the cover. <laughs> he, see, he did the right thing. And it worked. He did the right thing. He didn't put them in the spotlight personally before they were personally capable of dealing with it. Record producer Charles Fisher. In a
0: moment, Charles tells Peter about the production process, what it takes to make a hit record, his time out of the business and how two boys from Brisbane, Savage Garden, brought him back into the business in a big way. So here you are, the
2: producer, on one side of the control room panel, and there inside in that studio are there's a singer with some backing musicians, or there's a band, four or five people, and in layers you're recording them. When does When does it usually twig on you that it's gonna work? Is it before you start?
1: Uh, usually. Yeah. You, usually I, I have a script before I shoot the film. Right. I mean, I, I the song is everything for me. So I know that I've got a good song and I know if I dress it correctly and record it correctly, it could work. Hmm. Um, but I'm also aware that it's not... Just the song that's going to make it work. Mm. And today's climate, that is even more apparent because, you know, radio is no longer the sole arbiter of what's popular and what's not. And mar- marketing you, yourself as an artist has become so different now. So I, I used to worry about. When I had a great song and I'd look and the manager in my opinion in my humble opinion the manager was clueless or there was no manager I would get very worried uh, I'm doing it right now I'm working with this girl we've made, we made a record I'm just about finished it and she said are you, are you going to send it to the record companies and I said no I think we should find a manager first
2: mm. Because really the uh, the thing to understand as well from my point of view is at that stage you were an interface into the music business. You, you were, I mean, no one didn't know Trafalgar, no one didn't know Charles Fisher. And to be a producer as well as the owner of a, of a, a recording studio was actually a really
1: big job. It, it was, And it was pretty unique too for its day. Not, yeah. not so much now, but for its day it was. Uh, you know, ha- having said that, uh, I always I always felt like an outsider. You know, I would go to ARIA Awards and APRA Awards and things like that and I would always feel like an I saw six of my bands pick up ARIA Awards for albums of the year. I never got a mention, you know. So I I I also always felt like a bit of an outsider.
2: Is that not one of the burdens of being the record producer? I sometimes? think it I
1: think it's one of the burdens of being a pop record producer and I love pop. Yeah. So I remember one very well-known, after What About Me, I remember one very well-known Australian producer with a lot of credibility at the time coming up to me in the corridors of EMI Studios in Sydney saying, how could you make a record like that? I I could not face my friends if I made a record like that. And I was gobsmacked. Part of me was hurt and part of me was gobsmacked that you could denigrate I looked at him and said, you know, I've got to be honest with you, you're not denigrating me, you're telling me that 100,000 people who bought that song are basically idiots. And that, that I, see, I can't buy that. See... You know, uh, that, that, you know the, what's the old uh, adage of never, under, never underestimate the taste of the American public? Hmm. I don't buy that.
2: Look, I, 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 was, a, I was a visitor to Countdown a lot and when William Shakespeare turned up with my little girl, and and we all sat in the canteen, sniggering, and then somebody pointed out that George and Harry had produced the song. Yeah, and all of a sudden we all had to sta- sit, stand That's up right. and salute everybody has to do it I mean, everybody it's, ha- it, it, it's, it, it, a, it's look, a journey isn't it
1: if if I, I honestly believe that if you make a piece of work and a lot of people have taken their hard-earned money and bought it because it makes them happy mm. you have no right to denigrate it
2: yeah quite and and you know love is in the air is hardly a rock and roll song hardly a rock and roll song
1: no. so you close the studio close the studio. I started to feel like a delicatessen owner. I mean, the the, the reality is that a recording studio is a service industry, and you do do get to a point where you're just tired of the clients complaining and trying to make them happy. And it started to feel a bit like an albatross to me, and uh, I thought it was time to move on. I moved nowhere. (laughs) I didn't work for two and a half, three years. Really? Yeah, I was was told by the powers that be that I'm too old. I was in my late 40s by then, right? I'm too old to be a producer of pop records.
2: And then two boys from Queensland shopped their demos to a very disinterested recording industry in Sydney. Correct. And eventually came face-to-face with... The bloke who had previously managed the Angels and the Baby Animals, correct? Who, who was at the time thinking, "Do I really want to
1: be in this business well, anymore?" Well, he, he was. He—it's funny—he was in the same place as me because he started to think that management is not yeah. where it's at. So,
2: you know, I'm the I'm the observer in this, saying that all of a sudden, through serendipity, two two of the people that I think. In the history of the business, will be always perceived as the guys who could pick a hit record. Meaning you and John Woodruff got together. Yep, and history got made.
1: It's it's really it's really funny. I first encountered John Woodruff uh, in the late seventies when they started Dirty Pool, and they were thinking of doing a label. And
2: so for our for our listeners, Dirty Pool was an agency. That was set up by the managers of Colchisel, House, The Angels, and I can't think if there was another one. But the the main th- re- reason they did it was because the business was dominated by Michael Gudinski's premier uh, premier artists. And if you worked in a in a venue, whether you had a number one record or not. You had to go through those guys to get into these places. And the bands that Dirty Pool had, Chisel, the angels that were at the time the biggest bands in the country. So the deal that that these guys set up, and you have to understand how it all worked, was instead of walking in and saying, okay, I want $20,000, $15,000, $10,000 to do the job, Dirty Pool guys would say, we'll take a $5,000 guarantee and then we'll take the door. Whatever right. comes through the door, we'll take, and you you get the bar. Revo-
1: so suddenly, these public
2: publicans were going, "Oh, that's not a bad deal, is it? I don't have to risk a thing." Oh, and by the way, we'll help you do the PR and the marketing and the publicity, and we'll make sure the street posters go up. And all of a sudden, Colchester was making forty grand at oh, the yeah. Narabine yeah. Hotel.
1: They, they, they revolutionised yeah. the way. They
2: were smart as whips. Yeah, Ray Hearn, John Woodruff. And uh, Rod, Rod Willis. Rod Willis, uh, the beloved for, original manager of Cultures. Yep. So, um, so, so Woody I, I, turns I, up at your front door?
1: No, I, Woody Woody calls me on the telephone and asks me to come into Dirty Pool. He's got a proposition for me. They wanted to start a label. Uh, of course, they didn't want to have to pay for recording studio time, so, you know, they were looking to get... My studio somehow involved, right? Right, but y- you didn't have a studio anymore. Uh, no, uh, this is se- This is the late seventies. Oh, fir- beg your pardon. The, fir- the first time I met Woody, right? And I just finished there. Air-, air-, air Supply had like broken all over the world, and they spoke to me about their concept. And then Woodruff looked at me and said, "However, I do want to point out we are not interested at all in making records like Air Supply," which I thought, which I reminded him of in the late nineties when. You know, in a funny way, he had he had the, the, next, the, air the, he supply. Had the next air supply. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, oh, so w- w- the the band sent out all these tapes. Woody, they got rejected by everyone except Woody. Woody thought there was something there, so would thought, okay, I'm going to go and shop it. But Woody also hit brick walls. Nobody, nobody was interested. So he was at the end of his tether, and he didn't know what to do. And I was flat on my bum, and I, I wasn't working. And our mutual friend at the point at that point was Michael McMartin. So Michael McMartin said to Woodruff, "Look, why don't you talk to Charles? He's not doing anything, and you know he's done a couple of these spec things before. See what he thinks." So Woody called me in, and I listened to the stuff, and I thought it was great, and especially especially this one song, which actually ended up being the only song on that original demo that Woody played me that we recorded.
2: To the Moon and Back? To the Moon and Back. My wife's favourite song of all time.
1: My, I, it blew me away, that song. And, and we, I actually I heard five songs. I didn't record any of the others except that one. Literally and, people still turn the radio up to full volume to hear that yeah, song. I, I love that song. So uh, I, I said to Woody, look, you know, I, I love this song, To the Moon and Back. Let's give it a shot. And Woody said, great. And I remember him saying, and I remember saying, Uh, you know, let's, let's do, do a couple of tracks and see what happens. So, um, he spoke to the boys in Brisbane. They had known of my track record because Darren was a researcher. He knew the Australian history inside out. So he knew where I was coming from. I flew up to Brisbane. We met at Daniel's parents' house and we got on okay. There was a good vibe between us. Mm -hmm. And, I came back to Sydney and uh, said to Woody, okay, let's have a go. And I had sold Trafalgar at that point, except I kept my 24-track tape recorder, which was sitting in my hallway, and I kept a microphone and a preamp, and that's all I had. And I said, send them to the house and we'll, we'll make a record. It's in Rose Bay? It's in Rose Bay. So we made the whole album in my house. <laughs> With one microphone. Does everybody know that story? Is I, it? I don't know. I've, t- I've told it a couple of times. I, I, don't uh. know if it, I don't know if it registers to people what it means to... I remember when, when it was number one in Billboard and they asked me to give them studio details and I wrote, uh, you know, that I did it in my living room. Yeah. The Billboard guys rang me from America and at that point in time, home recording was not fashionable. Mm. The guy from Billboard rang me up and said, Look, I... I I can't put in the paper that you recorded this at home. Living in, room studios. In, in my living room. And I said, all right, well, then can you put down home studio or project studio or something like that? And he went, I can do that. And I said, then put that down.
2: Yeah.
1: But I did it in my living room. I did it in, the whole thing was done in a room smaller than the one we're sitting in. In part two of Peter Ricks' conversation with a
0: record producer known as the Song Doctor, Charles Fisher... They talk about Charles's 10 years of producing in the US, the arrival of digital audio and production, and what the landscape looks like for a record producer now. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.